Let's spend a moment to pray. God, we're grateful for the, the reminder to turn to Jesus, certainly in a time of Lent when that's expected. But we do, we take as our example what Christ did, the life that Christ led, the ministry that Christ modeled for us. And we realize that Christ is not just a presence that shows up in our life to enrich us and to lead, to lead us into more abundant living, but Christ is constantly prompting us by the Spirit to turn to a world that is so in need. And so I pray that you help us even in this moment as we take a look at humility together, how we can again turn to that example that Christ set for us. And by your spirit, soften our hearts to receive a message you might have for us this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we are taking a look at humility in this week five. Woohoo! Everybody say, yay, humility. <laughs> How many of you came to church this morning just saying, God, I just need to be more humble these days? Yeah, I see no hands. It's interesting how we treat humility different than many other fruits of faith. Uh, for instance, when somebody says, I'm feeling really loving these days, or I'm just really overcome with joy or peace, you know, we would respond to them in what way? How inspiring, what, what great things God is doing in your life, how magnificent that you're feeling that way. But when someone says to you, I'm feeling really humble these days, do we respond that way? No, it's usually like, hey, what's, what's going on in your life? Something must be wrong. There's something we can pray for you about. Humility is different, but it's so central, and that's why I wanted to talk about it this morning. I do put it in the category as, uh, along with patience as one of those things you probably don't pray for or don't want to pray for. And if you grow up like I did, taught that if you want patience, don't pray for it. Because God's going to give you those life circumstances, those obstacles that are really going to try your patience, hoping that you come out on the other end of that, a patient person. Well, probably in the same with humility. You know, it's hard to sit here and just pray, God, maybe more of a, a humble person. Notice he lost you. And so once we've noticed it in ourselves, we become prideful about how humble we are being. And then you're in need of more humility so that you can kind of come back down to earth and undo that pride. It's this vicious cycle that I find. But without some process or some lens to notice humility in our lives, how do we know whether we are growing in self-giving love and service to the world? So I thought by way of discovering whether or not you are a humble person that we would do a quiz. Okay, are you ready for this? I found it online, so it's legit. Just trust me. All right, I'm going to show a series of phrases to see if they apply to you. And to the extent that they do, there are points that you'll just kind of tally along the way. Now, just you keep a general idea how you're doing. You don't have to really write these points down. But I found it to be very uh, fun and helpful to go through. So I'm going to put you through it as well. Okay, so number one, you engaged in random acts of kindness this weekend. Give yourself a point for every single act. Number two, you didn't even notice that you're being kind to others because you're always putting their needs above your own. <laughs> if that's you, give yourself 40 points. 
Number three, you just gave yourself 40 points for the previous question. So take away 38 points. Number four, you interrupted someone else while they were talking over the past two days. And take away a point for every time you interrupted. Number five, you asked someone for advice lately. And give yourself two points for every person that you asked. Number six, you actually took that advice. So give yourself another two points. Number seven, you didn't just remind yourself that the person you got advice from graduated from nowhere school in Who Cares, Idaho. Anybody been there? Give yourself two points if you didn't remind yourself. Number eight, you just insulted the entire state of Idaho. So just take away five points. Anybody from Idaho, I'm sorry. That's just, again, it's not my quiz. Number nine, in those encounters with people, you thought to yourself, why am I even listening? I have an Ivy League degree. Anybody? Take away 10 points. Number 10, you asked someone for help lately when you needed it. Plus three points. Number 11, you listened to someone share about their problems recently. Give yourself four points. Number 12, you spent more than 30 minutes complaining about your own problems in that span of time. Take away five points. You speak well of those who have criticized or disagreed with you, number 13. Give yourself four points. And number 14, you thought, who would ever disagree with me? Take away 10 points. And last, in this quiz, you're thinking right now about how to post your humility quiz results on social media. So take away 20 points. How did you do? In general, if you got about zero to 10 points, you need a lot more Jesus in your life. Not gonna lie. If you're somewhere around 11 to 20 points, you're probably right on track, but you got a lot of work to do. And if you're above 20 points, your humility is really off the charts. So that's a fun way to think about humility, but I do want to draw the attention that this morning I don't necessarily want to focus on acts of humility or acts of service that we might do from time to time. I see that as humility on a micro level, whether you're one that holds doors open for people, whether you admit you're wrong to people, whether you say you're sorry enough, or maybe for men, if you ask directions on a road trip, whatever. And that might be part of the humble life, but those are the things that you do and not the person that you are. And I want to discover the difference between the two in our short time together. And this is to think about humility on a macro level. Father Richard Rohr, one of my spiritual heroes, says that there are two halves of life. And I want to spend a moment exploring this. That language, two halves of life, is not his originally. Um, but it is something that he expounds on in a really helpful way in a book that he wrote some years ago called Falling Upward. And if you have not read that book, I would recommend it to you. Richard Rohr, Falling Upward. And in the book, he breaks down life really into two seasons. In the first half of life, you're really interested in building up your sense of security. This is where a person's identity is being formed as they are discovering their place in the world. And this is a very necessary season of formation that everyone goes through. 
Um, it's often, often thought about as building up the ego self. You might have heard that language. Or some call it the false self. And it's false because in this season, it's, not, it's really just the container that is being formed into which the rest of your true identity will be developed later in life. It's the well that you will draw from throughout the rest of your life. And we could think about the ego self being like the Instagram self or the TikTok self. It's the self that you present to the world, but we would never confuse that for being who you really are. And how do we transition out of this way of thinking? Well, Roar goes on into the book um, talking about that sometimes it's going to be through some experience of trial or failure or loss um, that we really understand that our identity, our existence, really lives at a much deeper level than the facade that we put out there. And this wakes us up to this new reality or a second half of life. And in this second half, the ego still has a place and purpose. It's just now at the service of the true self, or what some would call your soul or your very essence. In this second half, it's when you understand your inherent identity, and you aren't trying to prove yourself in the same way anymore. And often find that you can deal with complexities in life such that you can see failure and defeat as part of your victory and even your strength. Your true self knows that it's not enough just to be successful or even safe and healthy, even though those um, are things that enable you to exist, they are not the reasons why you exist. And so here's the point I wanna make in discovering this, to tap into the abundant, rich life that God wants us and God underscores in Christ, it has to transition out of that first half of life. It cannot stay there. Carl Jung, the famed Swiss psychologist, once said the following quote, one cannot live the afternoon of life according to the program of life's morning. For what was great in the morning will be of little importance in the evening, and what in the morning was true will at evening become a lie. And I would suspect that many of you have found that to be true, as I have. You have found that the ego self can no longer serve you in the same way as life becomes more complex and the needs of the world become more apparent as you go along. And to speak of two halves of life, some of us might be thinking of terms of like age or um, even maturity, I guess that could be part of it. You know, at what age does this happen? At 21, does it happen at 30, 50, 66 when you retire and you start playing golf a lot? You know, but it really has nothing to do with age and time. In fact, the shift from the first half of life to the second half of life is not a given. And I think this is the part that strikes me the most. Because many spend their entire lives living out of their ego self how they're viewed by others, the possessions they own, their status, their wealth. These are things that will always define them. And so when that changes, your status, your wealth, your health, your safety, and so goes their purpose and their worth. And that's to mistaken the container for the substance itself. And I think some transition kind of late in life to the second half 
they're much older, but they find this new vitality, this new sense of purpose, maybe it's a new worldview, but they become opened up to their world, even at a very old age. And I think that's a beautiful thing. It reminds us that it's never too late to grow into the person that God wants us to be. And then obviously some discovered this shift at a very unusually young age. And they live with this grounded sense of self for most of their life. And we have some amazing examples that you're calling to mind even now. These young people that just get it and they live in service and love to the world. When thinking about these two halves of life, I think this one thing is true. The values of the Christian faith exist solely in this second half paradigm. This means that if you're wondering what it means or what it looks like to follow Jesus, it necessarily includes a movement away from the false self. It means that if you're caught up constantly building your own sense of security by hoarding more things, more attention, more notoriety, more wealth, more Instagram followers, you're likely unavailable to the people around you in the ways that they need you throughout life. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. Some translations say you must die to yourself. It's very dramatic language, but it's language of complete transformation, an entire shift in how you operate. So I wanted to put these side by side here in a diagram. In just a second, it'll pop up here. The values of the false self on one side and the values of the true self on the other side. You'll notice that in the false self, it's very me-centered, which leads to Things like separation and blame, hostility, resentment, pride, a complaining attitude, jealousy, and so on. And then to oppose that on the right side, the values of the true self are centered on we, community. It leads to unity and understanding, friendliness and forgiveness, love and gratefulness and humility and the like. And now which side do you think God wants us to operate from? How can we not operate from the true self? The Apostle Paul knew the tendencies of the ego self, and as soon as he recognizes it in the church at Philippi, he sends them a letter, like all good pastors do. And I think this portion that I want to read in just a moment from Philippians 2 is probably one of the most beautifully written parts of Scripture. And so let's look at these words together, beginning in verse 3. Don't let selfishness and prideful agendas take over. Embrace true humility and lift your heads to extend love to others. Get beyond yourselves in protecting your own interests. Be sincere and secure your neighbor's interests first. In other words, adopt the mindset of Jesus Christ. Live with his attitude in your hearts. This is a portion of the passage and I'll continue reading in a minute, but it's interesting, Paul is really pretty happy with this church. We get that sense because as you read the book of Philippians, he uses the word joy a lot. But it's a community of people, and whenever there's people, there's uh, the chance for egos to cause division. And, and so he writes them this letter. And with any letter, there's always just one side that we're hearing. 
but it's obvious that the church was growing in competition with one another and letting these petty divisions get in the way of their unity and so their mission to love and serve the world. And Paul reminds them that to be in Christ-like community requires this shifting of centering oneself and to centering others. And that's a move he calls true humility. I like that, true humility. He says, lift your heads, get beyond yourselves, think about the interests of your neighbors first. And he uses Christ as the ultimate example. Continuing in verse 5, in other words, adopt the mindset of Jesus Christ. Live with his attitude in your hearts. Remember, though he was in the form of God, he chose not to cling to equality with God, but he poured himself out to fill a vessel uh, brand new, a servant in form and a man indeed, the very likeness of humanity. He humbled himself, obedient to death, a merciless death on the cross. This is probably my favorite part because it's interesting what Paul is doing. He's including here what many scholars believe to be an early Christian hymn, kind of like we just heard uh, uh, Esther sing a minute ago and Elliot on the keyboard, an early Christian hymn that was already in circulation in the churches at the time. And just to think that Paul's letters were some of our earliest manuscripts in the New Testament. To think that this song was already being sung in the churches, it would be one of our earliest Christological statements that we would get. And that's just a statement about who Jesus is. So it's interesting to think that probably one of our earliest sources to name who Christ was could have been a song about so many other things, so many other attributes like joy or boldness or triumph, or the supposed exclusive nature of being God's people, or the holiness of Jesus, or the righteous fire of justice, but instead, one of our earliest texts is a song about humility. I find that to be very beautiful. The song says that Christ chose not to cling to his status, but poured himself out for others in humble service. I like how The song amplifies in verse 8. It begins with a simple phrase, he humbled himself. But then he doesn't end it there. He says, not only that, but to the extent of death for others. That's kind of a level two sense of humility. And not only that, but just a merciless, gruesome, highly public, highly shameful death on the cross. And the point that the song is making here is the same point that Jesus made when he washed his disciples' feet. We're not going to read that text, but it's a beautiful text as well. And Jesus says, this is to be your life now. It looks no other way. If you want to follow me, your humility must become your strength. You have to give up yourself in order to find yourself. And I guess this week, as I'm thinking about all of these thoughts and reading this passage again, I'm wondering if our church, this community of believers, what it would look like if we committed ourselves to living out of our true self and not our ego selves. And what difference that could make in our community, not only here within these walls, but outside of our walls. I'm really thinking there's no... Uh, There's no end to what God can do with that sense of openness and availability. Have y'all heard the term Ubuntu? 
that's kind of a, an African philosophy that's come into the wider public view as of late. It's a beautiful term. Uh, the term itself is a Bantu term, which essentially means humanity. But this philosophy that comes out of Africa is often expressed in the translated phrase, I am because of who we all are, or some form of that, which is just beautiful. It, in, it emphasizes one's sense of being only in relation to others, only in relation to the community itself. And this counters our individualistic society, which says, me first, and then whatever I have left over, I'll give to you, right? It's kind of a backwards way of thinking about it. It's a sad way to think about it, really. But it describes the second half mentality. Only in service to others, in relation to others, do I understand my own sense of self, and I gain my own sense of worth. And I think that that is the life that Christ is calling us to, and that Christ modeled, and cannot look any other way. So I want to close offering just a few quick practical suggestions. Some of these are probably pretty obvious, but I think it's a good reminder. And the first one would be just to be teachable. Live with the mentality that the more you know, the less you know. This will keep you from being closed off. Some of our greatest heroes were and are lifelong learners. And that's a mark of humility. Number two, be reachable. I think it's helpful to live with this internal motto that says nothing is beneath me or no, no one is beneath me. And that's a way of keeping at bay our natural tendency to label people and create our own hierarchies with those that we encounter because we do that naturally. That's our default. It's really our defensive mechanism, right? But Christ modeled what it looks like to be reachable in his ministry to outsiders and the marginalized. Nothing was ever beneath him, and no one was ever beneath him, and we should strive for that too. Number three would be uh, just be grateful. Express gratitude. I find that the grateful heart can never be the prideful heart. Those two things cannot mix. And the grateful heart... Uh, or gratitude unlocks the humble heart. It will inevitably turn you from service to yourself to service to the world. So find ways to be grateful. And number four, have the mind of Christ. This means that you choose ways of humility even though you have every reason not to. And most of us have reasons not to be humble. This means that you become so committed to lifting others up and liberating others, even though it will cost you something. And most of the time, it will. During the season of Lent, I find it to be a good time to fix our minds on Christ's example. So as we even get into next week with Palm Sunday, I don't know about you, but probably one of my, the most meaningful times in the year for me, certainly as a worship leader in the context of church worship, but just a... Uh, a season, a shorter season of reflection as we get into Holy Week and then just two weeks from now, Easter Sunday, it's a good time to remind ourselves that this is what it looks like to follow Christ. Humility, service that costs you something, always churning down status for liberation of other people. 
And that's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for myself as well. So let's pray as the worship team comes up. God of the humble Christ, we know your heart when we reflect on the life and ministry of Jesus. We see your example of one who had every reason to cling to status and notoriety, to position and platform, yet chose to serve instead. And how often we are faced with those choices and end up choosing security and our own comfort instead of following Christ's example. May this season be rich in opportunity to commit again to a life of humility, of service, of self-giving, extravagant love for neighbor and for world. That's our prayer this morning. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Let's respond. And as we do, I will ask that you stand with us if you are able and comfortable to do so. I will also remind you that our prayer team is um, standing at the back, ready to accept you. If you have a need for prayer this morning, they would love to pray with you and for you. So let's respond in song.